0: The morning of Wednesday, April 19th, 1995, dawned clear, bright, and beautiful in Oklahoma City. In an instant, everything changed. At 9.02 a.m., A massive explosion rocked the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The impact was felt across the entire city. A cloud of gray smoke polluted the air as glass, rubble, and debris rained down from the sky. Over 300 buildings were damaged by the blast. Hundreds were injured, and the lives of 168 innocent men, women, and children were taken. As people across the city rushed to safety, first responders rushed to the blast. Authorities began searching for answers in what is now remembered as the deadliest domestic terror attack in United States history, the Oklahoma City bombing. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Horrific bombing of Oklahoma City was an attack planned by two anti-government extremists, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. McVeigh was a Gulf War veteran who had been influenced by white supremacist and neo-Nazi writings. Following the events that occurred during the 1992 Ruby Ridge siege, as well as the 1993 Waco siege, McVeigh's anger and resentment towards the United States government festered. McVeigh, along with Nichols, his accomplice he met in the army, created a plan to retaliate against the federal government. Together, these two domestic terrorists devised their plan. McVeigh drove a rental Ryder truck packed with homemade explosives to their target location, the Murrah Federal Building. Following the deadly explosion, the hunt for the pair responsible began. Only 90 minutes after the bombing, McVeigh caught the attention of an Oklahoma State trooper for driving without a license plate. He was arrested for the possession of a concealed weapon. Nichols was arrested shortly after. That August, McVeigh was found guilty of 11 counts of murder and conspiracy and was sentenced to death. He was executed on June 11, 2001. Nichols was charged with one count of conspiracy, eight counts of involuntary manslaughter, and later, 161 counts of murder in the first degree. He is currently incarcerated at ADX Florence in Colorado, where he's spending his multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. The tragic events that occurred that day changed the lives of Americans, especially Oklahomans, including Chris Fields, a former member of the Oklahoma City Fire Department, who was a first responder that day. But first, former FBI agent John Iannarelli joins me now to break down the details behind this case. John, thank you so much, of course, first and foremost for your service and for joining us today to provide the background and the description of how federal law enforcement identified the Oklahoma City bomber. Can you share with us how did this case first land on your desk and your perspective walking us through?
1: Well, Emily, I was one of many agents working this case. The FBI assigned 1,400 agents because this was the biggest terrorist attack on U.S. soil up until that time before 9-11. It's still the largest domestic terrorism event we ever had. So resources were pulled from everywhere and put into solving this case as quickly as possible.
0: So was it that same day? How how soon after the horrific bombing were those hundreds of agents mobilized then?
1: Everyone was mobilized immediately and on the ground, the painstaking effort not just to rescue victims and recover the remains of others, but also the gathering of evidence. And it was that initial gathering of evidence that led to where this subject, Timothy McVeigh, was, and the FBI was able to go in and make the arrest.
0: So walk us through your particular involvement and your story as it played out then.
1: Well, I think it's very important to recognize McVeigh, when he was trying to get away from the crime scene, was actually apprehended and stopped by a state trooper He didn't have a license plate on his vehicle. He was carrying a concealed weapon, and he wound up in jail because a trooper did his job that day. Through putting the evidence together, including getting all the remains of the truck, people don't realize that VIN number you have on your dashboard of your car, maybe on your car door, is also etched into all different places on a vehicle. Well, the bomb was in a Ryder truck, and the axle of which ended up about two blocks away. The FBI recovered that axle, found the VIN number, was able to determine where that vehicle was from, went to the rental agency, and got the name of the person who rented it. Even though McVeigh was using an alias, he had been arrested under that alias, and he was sitting in jail waiting to be released when FBI showed up to take him into custody.
0: And so in processing that evidence, you know, two blocks away, that's a volume I'm I'm sure is unimaginable. How did that process, the evidence recovery, how did that play out?
1: It was a massive undertaking. Literally, aside from the 1,400 agents working this case, it came to about 840 days total of working this investigation. The FBI, in addition to the evidence where they put in more than a million man hours just collecting and processing, there literally was over 200,000 photographs of each individual piece of evidence taken, more than a billion records were searched looking for anything related to the evidence in McVeigh. It was a massive undertaking but all led to the arrest and conviction of not just McVeigh, but his accomplices, some of whom one is sitting in jail right now to this very day.
0: And in, in that recovery, you know, it, it sounds simple or it can sound simple to the layperson that the VIN and this one Axel, but 840 days is a tremendous amount of time. And there's more evidence that is needed for that prosecution. So in that search and in that recovery, you also discovered his feelings against the government of um, extreme rage, obviously, and, and the fact that he had been wronged. So how was that folded into the mix uh, from the FBI?
1: The one thing about the FBI, Emily, we may be slow, but we're thorough, Mm -hmm. and they leave no stone unturned. When McVeigh's feelings for the U.S. government, along with the feelings of his accomplices of hatred for the U.S., the FBI went to great pains to make sure that they left no stone unturned. They conducted over 43,000 interviews of various people, anybody who had been in contact with McVeigh and the others. During the course of his life, and more recently, leading up to the event, looking for other evidence, possibly other accomplices, making sure that everyone who was involved was held accountable.
0: And given the enormity of the event, and again, it remains the largest domestic terrorism incident, as you've mentioned, what was that shock like? within the FBI. What was that processing like within the FBI, sort of emotionally at that time? Can you describe the tenor of the agency sort of before and during and after?
1: It was a tragic day. But as trained professionals, you have to put your feelings aside. But there's none of us that don't recall the picture of the firefighter holding the baby and that all the other innocent children. Let's not forget McVeigh had looked at various locations to do the most harm. And one of the reasons he chose the building in particular was because they had a daycare center and he wanted to kill civilians to send a message. The reality in terrorism, you hurt us, we're concerned. You hurt our children, then you really have an impact. McVeigh was evil and wanted to hurt and kill children.
0: Yeah, little Bailey Allman. Um And across the street was a daycare too, is the the reverberating blast blew out windows for blocks and for a long time. So it's, it's frankly remarkable that more people weren't killed given the extent of that devastation and his insidious intent on harming others, to your point. Um, So, you know, as you mentioned, of course, the FBI is always professional, but, you know, this was a domestic terrorism incident. This This was homegrown and it was a rage against the government that you all represented. So were there discussions of that? Did the FBI director address that at all?
1: Well, this changed many things. There was a whole militia movement going on in the country in certain areas, a lot of white supremacy at this time, and the FBI became much more in tune and focused. Mm -hmm. So the director of the FBI and others, of course, they address what we're dealing with and how people may be feeling. But the bigger issue, our job is to keep people safe in this country. And so we started looking at these different groups and their operations. Today, You don't hear a lot about militias anymore because of all the efforts that were taking place. There's still evil in the world, and there's still people that want to do harm for various reasons. But when it was brought to the attention of the government, the FBI jumped in with both feet.
0: Will you provide that sort of context um, as to McVeigh's rage against the government in the wake of Waco, Texas and that incident? Can you set that scene for listeners?
1: Well, McVeigh had been in the Army. He tried to get through Ranger School and did not make it through. That's not uncommon. Ranger School is really demanding, so it's no slight on anyone who doesn't succeed. But he became disenchanted with the government, disenchanted with the Army. And when he got out, he developed this anger towards the U.S. We had the incident in Waco, which ended in tragedy as well for many of the innocent persons there being led by David Koresh. But McVeigh looked at it and just saw it as the U.S. government hurting people, forgetting the fact that the Branch Davidians had opened fire on U.S. citizens, federal agents killing four of them. So the response was something that had to take place, even though there was a tragic result in it, of the Davidians' own making. McVeigh just wanted to take out his anger. He decided he was going to get even with the government and teach them a lesson, hence the bombing in Oklahoma City that killed 168 people.
0: Yeah. Upon reflection of this horrific terrorism event, John, was it remarkable to you how much evidence McVeigh left behind and how obvious he had made his anger and the physical evidence that was left behind?
1: McVeigh wanted to get away. He took the time to plant a getaway vehicle. It's why he had a false license plate, etc. So he left evidence behind, but his plan was to escape. The problem with a lot of criminals, they think they're smarter than everyone else. And yes, lots of evidence left behind, including working with numerous people to build the bomb, to plan the bombing, many of whom, as soon as this came to light, They wanted the best deal they could possibly get, Mm -hmm. and some of whom decided to work with the government. In addition to that, every crime scene has evidence that's left behind. There's no perfect crime, and there's no agency better than the FBI worldwide when it comes to finding evidence and collecting it.
0: Thank you, John. Joining me next to discuss the horrors he witnessed firsthand and the impact it has on him to this day is retired Oklahoma City firefighter Chris Fields, coming up. An iconic photo of a firefighter cradling the body of a young child became a symbol for the loss of innocent life from the Oklahoma City bombing. That firefighter was Chris Fields, and he joins me now to share his story and the story of Bailey Allman. Chris Fields, my friend, it's so good to sit down with you today on this, on a topic that you've really blessed so many and honored so many by sharing your story about the Oklahoma City bombing and the aftermath and how it impacted not just you, but a lot of first responders in general. And describe for us what happened that day on April 19th, 1995.
2: Oh, wow. well, first of all, thanks for having me on. honored to sit down with you and, and always honored to sh- share my story. Yeah, April 19th, 1995. Um, I always remember it, it was a Wednesday. Uh, I always remember it was a Wednesday because at the fire station, we have certain duties we did on certain days. And the fire station I was at that at that time, which was Station 5, which was just um, about 15 blocks north of the Murrah building of the bomb site. Uh, It was yard day. So some of the guys were out mowing and uh, weeding and stuff when, when we dispatched. So I just, that just always stands out in my mind it was just a it was a perfect I mean you can almost draw a picture just a perfect day it was uh it was I think it was the Wednesday after Easter, I think maybe even you know so it was a good time of year It was spring in Oklahoma beautiful weather and I think we were, I remember we standing around this fire station talking about the, what we we're going to do for breakfast, cooking breakfast and getting getting around and going to the grocery store and uh, we I think breakfast at 10 o'clock we noticed it we just happened to one guy looks at it, it's already nine o'clock. And it wasn't just a few minutes after that, that the, uh, that the bomb went off mm-hmm. and we felt it. We heard it. It rattled the, you know, the station. And then and then you hear reports, you know, over the years of, of police officers feeling it 45 something miles away, you know, and 30 miles away. And and so we went outside the fire station to look
0: in that moment, car- Chris, when, when you heard it. If you don't mind me asking, in that split instant, what did your brain think? What did you think that noise was when you heard it?
2: I'll I'll be honest. The first deal was just like one of those what the hell moments, you know, like what was that? And then immediately we thought uh, there was an ice cream plant right across from our Mm -hmm. station, which was a blessing over the years. Uh, But we thought we thought a train had derailed because it had a train yard. So we actually thought a train maybe had derailed or hit the station or a semi um our station was in the middle of a park a boulevard and if you're going too fast around this curve, we thought maybe a semi had hit the station at the backside. just anything so we went outside and looked and didn't see anything that direction so we looked back towards the uh downtown area and uh saw the large plume of smoke mm-hmm. And know when we were so close we just automatically self-dispatched we just let's go there was a um, Three rigs at my station that day. There was an engine company, a rescue ladder company, and I was the officer on the hazardous materials unit that day. And we just all three just uh, got in the rigs to head back south. We had to make a hairpin turn out of the fire station, and as soon as we made that hairpin turn, you could you could the plume of smoke was larger that which we found. You know, was from the cars that were burning, and as we got about. Eight, nine blocks away, we started seeing all these storefront windows blown out and people kind of, you know, staggering out. It was kind of not staggering, like, but just like shocked, you know, looking around. Got to the corner of 5th and uh, Broadway, which the Murrow building was on 5th, just a block over. And uh, spotted our rig and made our way towards the building. It was just, um, I tell people even today, it was, it was... Felt like we were walking on glass and debris the whole way and our feet were never touching the pavement. There was just so much debris and glass everywhere from other buildings and from the Murrah building. There was a YMCA caddy corner from the Murrah building. It's not there anymore, but there was a daycare in there also. So there was a lot of uh, workers and children there that were walking wounded. We helped our captain of the engine set up a triage there just for a few minutes and then we got called called down to the building. And that was the first time that we actually got a look at the entire Murrah building. Everything else is just kind of, you know, looking over here, doing this, checking people. And then as we, Fifth Street had a little hill on it. As soon as we topped that little hill and could see the building, it was just like, I know we didn't stand there with our mouth hanging open, but it felt like we did. You know, seeing what we were, you know, uh, nine stories, pancake down on top of each other, a third of the building gone. And I always tell people looking at it, and it doesn't take away. I don't. I don't say it to take away from any of the fatalities or the injuries that day. But if you would have told me right then, we're only going to have one hundred and sixty-eight fatalities. And like saying, I don't use that word only to disparage any, but to to think of the time of the day, nine o'clock in the morning downtown, everybody at work, and to say, look at that, you are only going to have one hundred and sixty-eight fatalities. I would have thought you were you were just absolutely crazy. So, I can
0: imagine in that moment. Your sole purpose and your singular thought is you know, the triage, helping others, rescuing. Was there room in that for the thought whether this was a purposeful, whether this was a nefarious source, whether you were in continued danger at all?
2: Um, you know, I don't I don't think so. I think what we thought of the continued danger was was the building collapsing some more. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the I know the first probably 30 or 40 minutes into the incident, I mean, we just still, everybody was just, no, you know, we had no idea that it was a bomb. We're thinking a, you know, maybe they were working on a natural gas line and, it, you know, it ruptured or, you know, it's just several different scenarios. We were running through our head what we thought it could be. It wasn't until they evacuated the building the first time or well, the only time that morning. Probably 40 something minutes into the incident, they evacuated because they said they had found another explosive device or another bomb. I can't remember the exact terminology they use, you know. And uh, of course, by that time, there's firefighters, police officers, <clears throat> EMS people, and even civilians in there that were already helping people and touching people and trying to dig them out. And, you know, some had to be forcefully removed because it was a mandatory evacuation. Mm. I know that some police officers had to forcefully move a firefighter buddy of mine because he was actually had hold of a lady's hand and was talking to her. And so it was just, I think that's when everybody kind of sat back, took a deep breath and we were like, and then it started the rumors, you know, it started kind of making its way around the site that it was, uh, you know, an intentional bomb that was uh, set up, detonated back then with everything, some of the stuff that was going on, you know, and, and the first reports was that it was Middle Eastern involvement, you know, uh, extreme Islamic, Uh, Involvement—that was the original thought. So then you're you're kind of angry and pissed off while you're doing it, thinking, you know, that these people did this to us, you know. And then you find out hours later, or even the next morning—I can't remember when—you finally hear that it was actually, you know, homegrown. And uh, especially after spending a full day down there and seeing all the things we experienced, uh, the things we saw and heard and smelled, and all that day. And then to find out that it was inflicted by Americans was really, really, uh, it angered a lot of people and it broke a lot of people's heart. It was just it was a bad day for America in one sense.
0: So after the mandatory evacuation, you know, at what point were you let back in to continue rescuing those who were trapped and ultimately those in the daycare?
2: Right. It was probably about. I think it was just an hour break or or break, an hour that they you know evacuated us. And what it ended up being was, up on the ninth floor was the uh, ATF offices, and that was of course if you know you know all the history that was. uh, I won't let me say I'll say his name once. Timothy McVeigh's, you know, his whole deal was to you know get even with the government. ATF was on the ninth floor. Some of those folks had involvement with the Branch Davidians in Waco two years before on April 19th. That's why he chose April 19th. Um, And so they found out that what somebody, a first responder had discovered was just a a dummy device or training device they had on display up on the ninth floor that they thought was a live explosive device. And so once that was determined, all good, that's when everybody was, uh, it was kind of a blessing, I guess, in disguise a little bit because it gave everybody a chance to step back exhale, you know, and it gave them a chance to set up what we call the incident command system. And so things got a little, your searches and where everybody was and what they were doing became a little more organized. So it was somewhat of a blessing in disguise, the the, the mandatory evacuation.
0: So after then that concluded and you were able to deploy then this organized response, uh, right. what did that look like for you personally and what were your tasks and duties and what did you encounter?
2: Then. um you know uh personally for for my crew and, and other crews that were down there uh there was a lot of uh rescue that first day at some point it became you know pretty much just recovery I tell you what about the first uh, right after the uh the evacuation is when uh police are police officers John Avery to me I still can't tell people where he came from if he came out of a door around a corner it's just like he appeared in front of me and said he had a critical infant. Just natural instinct took over. Um, police officers, especially back in 1995, they you know they weren't trained in first aid more so now, but not as much then. He was just looking for somebody to help him, and I just said, "Here, I'll, I'll take her." And that's when he handed me Bailey Almond, and the first thing I did was, and he was gone. I mean, he handed me to, uh, handed her to me and he was gone and meeting him over the years and talking to him. I think he said, I was like the third or fourth person that he encountered. He just kept saying, I have a critical infant. And it, it's one of the people weren't helping him. They had other stuff going and they were pointing him, you know, go over here, head over here. I just, I took her and said, uh, here, I'll take her and checked her for all the vital signs. You know, I had to clear some, uh, Concrete dust out of her throat. She had a, a slight open skull fracture. I think her little leg was broke. I couldn't tell, but I just didn't have any. I couldn't find any signs of life. I saw an ambulance across the street. I walked across the street and I said the exact same thing John Avery said. I said I have a critical infant. And the paramedic that I was talking to was uh, there was two of them, and I remember them saying hold on, let me get a blanket because we're not going to put that baby on the ground because there was nowhere to put her. The ambulance was full, had three people in it. And there were people laying around the ambulance on the ground on backboards. And um, to skip ahead to finding out there was a photo taken 11 p.m. later that night, I'm sure we'll talk about it. And then not seeing it till the next day. I knew exactly where I was at and what I was doing. I was just standing there waiting for that paramedic to get a blanket and I was just thinking to myself, you know, somebody's world is going to be turned upside down today. Hmm. And even thinking now, thinking that, you know, me having that thought and and holding Bailey, that scene was played out 167 more times around the building that day. You know, I was just in a fortunate, unfortunate spot, however you want to choose look at it, that an amateur photographer caught a picture of me looking at Bailey. And I think I was looking at her, thinking about, I knew she was close to my son's age. My oldest son, who's 30 now, was about two at the time. And Bailey had just turned a year old the day before, April 18th. So I knew she was close to my son's age. And I just thought, my thought was, gosh, you know, somebody's world is going to be just turned upside down. And uh, it's one of those deals where you get back in your mode. The, The paramedic took her from me. I went and caught up with my crew. When I got to them, they had already they had already helped extract one person out that was alive. And then uh, they heard a lady uh, kind of screaming, telling her, y'all are stepping on me. Y'all are stepping on me. And so everybody got quiet, and we kind of sounded out where we were standing, because she said she could feel the pressure of us standing on her. We were standing on top of rubble and stuff. So we wanted to find out how she was laying, where her head was. So we were saying, you know, where do you feel the pressure now? She was able to talk to us. Um, uh, her name was Sheila driver. She was 28 years old. She was pregnant. I'll always remember. So we dug, we got her out and we, uh, put her, uh, they had to set up a rigging system because we were down what we call the pit area. So we had to put up a rigging system on these ladders and they hauled her up out of there and put her on the ambulance. That was the last live person that, that I had contact with the rest of that day or the rest of the time I spent at the bomb site and that was that was all before noon, so the rest of the day for for me and my crew, uh, I know there were there were extrications of live people going on around the building, but for for me and my crew, the rest of that day was pretty much a recovery mode. We were with uh either live scent dogs or cadaver dogs the rest of the day, and uh, finally got released to go back to the station about eleven thirty that evening.
0: At what point did you learn? That Bailey had not made it.
2: Um, In my mind, I knew I knew she had already passed when when I had her. Um, I had gave her and handed her to the paramedic, and um, went and caught up my crew and worked the rest of the day. Um, I remember we took one break, and uh, I talked about one of one of the firefighters I was with. Uh, I think I had mentioned it to him. Uh, He tells me today that. You know, he said. I remember you coming up to me and saying, "You know, that baby didn't make it." Or I can't remember how he quoted mm-hmm. what I said to him, but we talked about it. And um, you know, then about eleven thirty that night, we got back to station once we all got a chance to kind of take a deep breath and call our families and let them know we were okay and all that kind of stuff. That's when I found out about the, the photo that had been taken, which was a. Uh, I can go into that. It was a weird. Uh, the dispatch office called like the station, like at 1130 at night. And, uh, the chief of dispatch, he said, Hey, Chris, did you carry a baby out of the building? And I said, I said, no. I said, a gentleman, police officer handled, handed me a baby. I said, why what's up? And he said, well, I, I had a picture faxed to me. <laughs> and, uh, I tell, I tell this story. I got to always have to, i talk to so many young first responders anymore. They don't know what a, you know, a fax machine was or The photographer took his roll of film to a photo mat to get it developed. I mean, I have to explain what all that stuff is. But uh, he called and just said, uh, I have a photo that's been faxed to us from the Associated Press, and they want to identify the firefighter in the photo. And um, I said, I don't know, Harvey. That was his name, Harvey. I said, I don't know, Harvey. It might be me, I guess. And he said, well, it looks like you. Of course, you know, firemen always ribbing each other and all that, because I remember him saying – I can't see your face all the way. He said, but I think I can see your uh your cheesy mustache. I remember <laughs> him saying that. He said, I can see your cheesy mustache. I'm pretty sure it's you. I said, okay, what's up with it? And he said, Well, the Associated Press that it's going said it's going worldwide tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they want to identify the firefighter in the photo. And the fire chief, uh, Gary Mars at the time said, sure, that's not like it's public records, you know. So he said, Yeah, if we can identify him, identify him. So I hung up the phone the next morning or hung up the phone with them and the guys and girls at the station said, what was all that, that about? I said, well, I, I said, I guess I'm going worldwide. Really not understanding the implication of what that meant until until the next morning um, when we and the next morning was tough for a bunch of us because we um, well, when we got up, we, of course, were watching all the morning shows and it was uh, they were showing all the headlines from around the world. And all their, their magazines and newspapers and that photo was just on every one of them, you know. And I think my first thought I remember thinking was, I wonder if the family even knows that their baby didn't make it, you know. I don't even think the people, the news people reporting the story didn't know that she, I, I had, I did a bunch of interviews after where people asked me about saving her and all that. So when they're running this headline, and this photo everywhere, a lot of people don't even know that she's, you know, deceased already. And that was my main concern. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" I said. The fam- i wonder if the family even knows. And then we were watching our local news; they were updating the fatality list, and that Sheila driver that we had rescued had passed away on the way to the hospital, and uh, with her unborn child. And uh, I, I still get emotional thinking about it because she had a daughter at the time that was living, like that was seven years old, I think. Total unplanned incident. I ran into this lady with some other people we start talking and I find out this was that Sheila driver's daughter. So I met her like three years ago, just total out of the blue and yeah, great girl. Uh, my name's Shaquanda look good. We stay in touch still. We visit on social media. Uh, so it was just a, uh, it was a kind of a double curse that day, seeing the photo and then finding out that Sheila didn't make it because that was just our little bit of high from that day. You know, um, as first responders, we want to get there and make a bad situation better. And we couldn't do a whole lot that day. And we thought we did with Sheila. And so to find out that she had passed was a kind of a pretty good gut punch for all of us. So um, that was kind of the start of a, of a whirlwind that I had number one, wasn't prepared for or thought I would ever experience.
0: We're going to take a quick break more from our guest after this. Can you share about what that experience was like and how that processing affected you, because understandably, the high highs and the low lows and then having what seems like a high become a low, that's unimaginable, especially in a multi-casualty incident. yeah, The magnitude of that and that the amount of families, the your community that was affected. Can you share about what that processing was like?
2: Yeah, and uh, and re- on the community that was affected, I always say, and it's 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 uh, it's still true today. And I hate it. It's a sad statement, but the way the city and the state and the nation came together after that, it's sad that it always takes a tragedy to show how much really good there is in this world. And that's what came out of that deal. It was just the the response from the citizens and the nation and the, the everything was just was just crazy. Uh, makes my hair stand up thinking about it was just so cool, but it's just on the other hand, so sad that it takes something like that for it to come to the forefront. But um, yeah, in my personal life, it just took, I mean, I think I got home at shift changes at seven. I think I got home just a little bit after seven and I don't know how the media people do it, but they were already parked on my street and they were in my front yard. They were knocking on neighbor's doors. And I will say this, it was the, it was the national, the local media was fantastic, and I think you know because it affects them personally because it's their community. so I think they they handle things a little more with kid gloves, you know, to so to speak, and uh, you know the national was coming in to get their stories uh, and it was just it was just crazy. I had to have our public information officer, Chief John Hansen good friends with quite a few of the police officers. And we said to get the police over there to run, get the media off our yard. And I don't know, it was just a, just a crazy time. I mean, I'm just a simple guy from Oklahoma. And all of a sudden I'm doing these interviews left and right. And uh, I felt a little uh, obligated to do them. And, and Chief Mars, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. He would call me and say, hey, Chris, so-and-so wants to know if you want to do an interview. He said, if you don't just tell me and I'll be the bad guy and I'll tell him no. Well, in my simple mind, I'm going, I don't want to be a bad guy. That's not who I am. So Mm. I would do the interviews. And then I met Aaron the day after the bombing was on Wednesday. I met Aaron on Thursday. Um, A local reporter called named Cynthia Gunn. And uh, she said, this is Cynthia Gunn. She introduced herself. She said, and by that time it had established that Bailey had, you know, passed away and, she said, would you want to meet Bailey's mother? And I said, no. (laughs) I said, my first response was no, because I thought, what am I going to say to her? What's she going to say to me? You know? And uh, Cynthia said, "Uh, okay. She goes, well, she had contacted us. She wanted to meet you. And I Mm -hmm. said, oh, well, that changes everything. I said, then let's, let's do it. Went and met Aaron, me and Sergeant Avery, the police officer. And it turned into a 20-year-old single mom who had lost her only child the day before comforting these what are supposed to be you know big figure men heroes you know she was there for us it was probably a a godsend that we got to meet her um you know she just thanked us that uh at least bailey was out and she knew bailey's fate and she could tell we were both fathers by the way we she could tell i could tell y'all handled her with love and care and so she was just thanked us i was like standing there thinking, what was she thanking us for, you know? So me and, me and Sergeant Avery are just like, we've lost all control, you know, and she's mm-hmm. she's comforting us. So it was kind of a, a deal to think this, how strong she was. And that's the way she was through most of it. I was really blessed to be uh, associated, like whatever, linked up with Aaron, and we're still great friends today. We still talk several times throughout the year. Uh, she's had two more children Since then, a a son, a daughter, her oldest and my youngest graduated from the University of Oklahoma a couple of months apart. And so we celebrate birthdays or at least send wishes and cars on holidays and stuff. So we're still great friends. And, uh, but that was another thing when when she would call and say, Hey, I'm going to do this interview. Would you do it with me? Well, Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to be. It was kind of like a big brother role. I'm I'm 10 years older than her. So I just kind of took on this big, big, Big brother role to her, you know, just wanted to be there for her, make sure she was okay. Uh, her and Cheryl, my wife, are, are good friends. Uh, heck, they probably talk more than me and her, do.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and while this, all this is going on, we're still going back to the station. We're still making calls, you know. We're still doing house fires. We're still making, you know, suicides, fatality car wrecks. We're still, you know, the job's still going on. So it was just a, it was just a crazy time and I will get into it. I guess the the things that happened afterwards I guess have made me I would do the job all over again with if they would let me. And would I live through that again? At first I want to say no, but then I want to say I probably wouldn't be the the father and the man, the husband I am today if I hadn't experienced that and got to my lowest of lows.
0: Can you share with us about your mental health following that and, and your journey, if you're comfortable sharing that?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there was, there were times after that and before things really bottomed out, you know, it was what the bombing played a significant, significant role in my mental health. Um, but it's that cumulative trauma, you know, over 15, 20, 25 years. Um, I ended up doing almost 32 years before I retired, but Bombing uh, was in 95 and, you know, I the stress of everything, I you know, and I carried this irrational guilt, what I call it, uh, of kind of being responsible that, you know, as far as talking to Aaron, Bailey's mom, you know, I'm the last one that she knows that, you know, held her child because of that photo. She wasn't allowed to grieve privately at all. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, that's just a burden. It's irrational guilt. I didn't, I didn't plan the photo. I didn't, you know, but it was just what if it hadn't happened? If that photo hadn't happened, she wouldn't have experienced this. She wouldn't be going through this. Well, you take all that. And then, like I said, along with the rest of the career, I'm starting to have these little mini bouts of depression and isolation, but I'm pretty good at covering it up and, you know, going to work because I don't want the people that put me in charge to think I couldn't handle my job. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want the people that, I'm in charge of making sure they they go home every day to think I couldn't handle my job. So this goes on for six or seven years. And in this time span, you know, we've, uh, I think I had to bury two brothers, uh, one that died in the line of duty and another one that, uh, was killed on his day off. Him and his 12 year old son were killed in a car wreck. Oh, um, sorry. you know, and then it's the, it's the everyday stuff we see every day. What we almost think of as routine calls. We try to put them in that category. That way we don't dwell on them. That's just the way, especially in 1995, I was hired in 85. That's just the way I was brought up on the job. Uh, you just you just suck it up and you go on. You get ready for the next call. It's not that those rough smoke eaters that raised me on the job didn't have empathy or sympathy or were harsh. That's just the way they were brought up on the job. You know, it's just, it's just the way it was. So there really wasn't a whole lot of talking about feelings and emotions, and we used a lot of dark humor, which is mm-hmm. perfectly acceptable. That's the way we deal with it. That's the way we get through a 24-hour shift. You know, you make a car wreck or a child drowning at 8 in the morning, well, you've still got 16 more hours of work, you know, when you get back to the station. So you've got to find a way to compartmentalize that or deal with it however you can to get through that other 16 hours of work. And that's just what we did. Not to belabor here and go on forever. Mine got to a point to where it started affecting my home life even more. My wife, uh, Cheryl, she knew it. She noticed it, but uh, she didn't know what to say or do, uh, you know. And when there's no lack of communication, because I'm not wanting to talk, I only want to come home and talk about the good things of the job, you know. I don't want to, I want to shield my family from all the gruesome stuff and the sad stuff and that kind of stuff. So when I'm having these bad days, And telling her that everything at work is fine. Well, she thinks she's the problem Mm. because I'm not communicating. So it just starts driving this wedge in the family. Uh, By this time, I've got two sons and uh, everything's starting to, I can feel it intensifying a little bit. Then in 2004, eight, nine, ten years later, we were putting a pool in our backyard and we were busting out the patio to extend it. And uh, I was jackhammering some concrete up and it started to rain and a lot of people don't remember it rained the night of the oklahoma city bombing so we were in this cold damp building and the smell of concrete dust and i caught the smell of concrete dust out in my backyard and i didn't like i didn't freak out i didn't like drop to my knee or anything but i just thought in my mind i thought man that smell is just like being inside the building that day and I can pinpoint that as the day that uh, the depression, the anxiety, the anger, all that really intensified, and it got to a point to where things around the house were toxic. Ninety nine point nine percent was me. <laughs> uh, I don't want to take full one hundred, so I always tell my wife, so I'll take ninety nine nine. But uh, but you know, it just got to where our arguments were. I, I was I was angry all the time. I was pissed off i was just wanted to be left alone i just want you know have my moments uh come home from the station get her off to work and the boys off to school and uh it got uh, to where our arguments started to intensify there was there was never any physical abuse but the emotional verbal abuse i was putting on my wife and kids and i I hate talking about it but i do it's part of it um you know, my my boys had to hear me say things to their mother that no children should have to have hear a spouse say about the other one. I don't care what the relationship is, good, bad, toxic. Young kids shouldn't hear people say the things that I said to their mother. And uh, as good as things are today, that's one of the things I still struggle with is forgiving myself. I know I'm forgiven, uh, but I have trouble forgiving myself for those things. And it just got to the point where my wife said, uh, hey, you need to talk to somebody and get some help or get out. That was the choices. I took the route of pride and ego. I got out. You know, I came to that fork where I had pride and ego, and I had the love of my family and the job and my friends over here, and I took pride and ego. and I was so good. I talk about how I can put on this face and be Chris Fields and be the happy-go-lucky guy and do what I need to do. We were separated for 17 months, and uh, a lot of people, uh, unless they were pretty close to us, there was a lot of people on the fire service didn't even know we were separated for 17 months. That's how good I was at putting the mask on every day to go to work um, that I needed to put on. And then it got tougher to do that. So now I was using, you know, Xanax and all that kind of good stuff to get through the to get through the days or get through the nights so I could get up and be that person I thought everybody needed me to be. Got friends and family reaching out left and right but they're not telling me the things I want to hear. They're telling me what I need to do to get better that, you know, there there's help out there. I didn't want to hear that. I was over here with this group that was in the same world I was in. I always tell people it was funny. I was getting my, my moral advice and my life advice from other firefighters sitting in a strip bar, drinking beer during the day. That's That was my, that was my counseling team, you know, because we were all in that world together. So we justified it to each other. And, uh, it's an old cliche, but it, uh, Emily, it got to a point to where I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was wearing myself out emotionally, financially trying to be, cause I still wanted everybody to think Chris Fields was this great guy. So I, you know, I just, uh, kept paying all their bills. I'm running up my bills over here. Just, just trying to keep up that lifestyle and let everybody think that, you know, I okay, I can handle it. And, um, uh, I never got to the point where I said, I'm going to kill myself. I never actually said those words or had, but I always thought that if I wasn't here, people could kind of pick up and start over. I had destroyed, I had alienated every friend, family, had an extramarital affair going on, was just hurting people left and right. And I thought, if I'm not here, people can start all over. I can find her a good man. That'll be a good husband. Treat her like she should be treated, uh, find a good father for the boys, you know, that would treat them, raise them like they're supposed to be. Um, and so I just, one night I just took as many Xanax and drank as much whiskey as I thought I needed to, to where if I didn't wake up the next day, that that would be everybody's kind of reset. And, uh, fortunately, um, uh, you've got to, all I did was made myself really, really, really sick. Uh, and, uh, woke up the next morning and called my wife, called Cheryl. And like I said, by then our phone conversations weren't, you know, real friendly. And I'm calling her early in the morning and she picks up the phone and says, what do you want? And I said, I want to come home. And, uh, she didn't even, she didn't even hesitate. She didn't even take a breath. There was no pause. She said, well, come on. And, uh, I always tell people I always want to think. Don't know where I'd be or where I wouldn't be if uh, if she hadn't said that. Uh, there was no hesitation in her at all, and uh, I think when I think when I think about it, I think you know, golly, God gave her the grace to forgive me, uh, and she used that grace. Uh, that's why I kind of thought, you know, everything's gonna everything's gonna be okay. Uh, it wasn't an easy road. Um, uh, you know, I, I reached out and talked to our fire department chaplain. I, uh, was ended up going to treatment, uh, first responder place out in, uh, north of San Francisco somewhere, uh, treatment facility. And it was just for first responders, you know, and it helped me see that I wasn't a unicorn. I wasn't the only one that everything I was feeling and going through about my career and the things I'd done to my family, it was perfectly normal. You know, I wasn't I wasn't alone, and that kind of helped me. I ended up being diagnosed with you know like PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, you name it. I checked all the boxes, but you know <clears throat> I got and I tell people and I talk to other first responders and tell them you know there's just there's no reason to get to that point these days. You know you're gonna you're gonna experience trauma in our profession. You can't avoid it, and it's usually not the trauma that gets you. It's how you deal with it or how you carry it. Man, I'm like the uh, post your child for, you know, not what, what not to do. Um, My wife will tell you, she used to, she used to pray. And I always tell people, you do not want to be a person that your spouse prays for God to take away their love for you. That's what Cheryl would do. She said, I couldn't let you go. She said, I knew I wasn't dealing with Chris Fields. She said, I knew there was something else, you know? And she said, but she said I used to pray for God to take away my love for you so I could just let you go. Fortunately for me, he didn't do that. And, uh, and I always tell first responders and veterans that, you know, you're, you're not alone. There's so many avenues out there. My son, who's 24, when he was at the uh, University of Oklahoma, I assumed he was a – even though being his mom, I try to think he's this angel, we know he was out partying and doing the college thing. But I used to tell him, I'd say, you know what, these days there is no excuse that I should get a phone call. That you've been arrested DUI or you've been in the, I said, because there's so many resources out there, Uber, Lyft, rideshare, all these resources. And that's what I tell first responders today from where I was 28, 30 years ago. Man, there are so many resources out there that are available. And I say you're still going to experience trauma. It's going to affect you, but having somebody to talk to about it doesn't always mean you're going to be diagnosed with anything or you're going to have to go to a treatment facility or anything. So I always tell people there's just so many resources out there that there's there's no reason to wait until the wheels fall off like, like I did before you reach out for help.
0: More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. I can attest personally, having had the honor of sharing a stage with you um, at a weekend event in Washington State, Chris, how effective your messaging is. And when we uh, both participated in the Permission to Start Dreaming Foundation's Prayer breakfast, the story that you shared, this story, and the impact that it had on so many combat veterans and first responders in the audience who maybe had been receiving that message for the first time. I mean, that was, that was palpable. Your, your message is saving lives. Um, and it's saving multiple lives, I'm sure, with each person, because just as your story illustrates, there's a family around every person who's going through trauma like that, every first responder, every veteran, et cetera. Um, Part of what I respect so much about you and admire so much is how you've endeavored your entire career to center the victims, to center little Bailey, to center those who don't have the voice that can speak for themselves and and to make sure that they receive attention, that people know their name. Can you speak to that?
2: It's... You know, I, as I try and will speak, I, of course I, 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 use the photo. I do that totally with Aaron's blessing, but I always show another picture of Bailey. Um, one that was taken at her birthday party the day before. And I do that for Aaron. Um, Aaron loves it, that it gives her that purpose that Bailey, you know, didn't die in vain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of a better way to put it. I, I know it sounds like cliche, but it's, it's just the way it is. And that, that I use that when I speak. So it's, you know, helping first responders and their families. Um, and then I show that picture of, of Bailey, because Aaron wants her to, uh, she wants people to know that she was a real person. Yeah. A lot of times Bailey gets forgotten and she's the baby in the firefighter's arms. That's all she's remembered as. And Aaron just wants people to know that Bailey was a, you know, she loved playing with her dolls. You know, she was a, she was a real person. And so, uh, you know, I, I love getting out there and talking about Bailey, Sheila driver, her story, you know, it's just, uh, like I said, it was one of those deals where we were talking to her one minute. The next, the next day we find out that she passed away, but to share her story that, you know, 168 people were killed that day, my gosh, the 700 injuries. And then all the families that were affected, it was so much bigger than 168 people and 700 injuries. And uh, that's what, you know, when I sp- speak to first responders, same, I say the same thing. We're sitting there talking about Chris Fields and what he went through. And I know you've talked to Jake Dobbins and what he went through and all these different, what we go through. We always forget about the family. We always forget about what my wife and my sons went through. So it, man, it does just my heart good to get out there and uh, talk to other first responders and let them know, you know, if you really want to be, the, our job, you know, they call us heroes. Nobody wants to be called a hero, but let's just take it and say that's what we are. Okay. Let's call us heroes. If you really want to be that person and that hero, then do what you got to do to take care of yourself so you can be that hero for your family. And, uh, that's why I tell them, be a hero to yourself and to your family and, and, you know, reach out and get the help. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a blessed man. You know, my marriage is great. Everything worked out. And I don't get up there as a marriage counselor and say, if you reach out and get help, it's going to save your marriage. I don't, because it's not an easy path. And, and Cheryl, my wife will tell you, uh, the fact that our marriage has survived and worked out was a blessing. She just wanted me healthy to be present, to be there for my boys. The fact that our marriage worked out was just kind of a bonus, <laughs> you know, like she said. Uh, so as I always tell people, You have to fix yourself first before you can be there to help anybody else. And that's what we do. We pride ourselves on, as first responders, being able to take care of everybody else. We put our needs first, or second. (laughs) And it's not self. There's so many statements now. You know, self-care isn't selfish. If you don't do self-care, then you won't be there to take care of everybody else. And I, as I say, I'm honored uh, every time I get to tell my story. It's it's emotional uh, for me still. Uh, But it's also cathartic to get to tell the story. Uh, Yeah, it takes some decompressing afterwards. It's an emotional journey. But to get some of the feedback I get and know that I'm letting people know that they aren't alone and to reach out for help before the wheels fall off. Uh, And use me as an example. If you want to say, I don't want to be Chris Fields. That's fine with me. Say, I don't want to be that guy that destroys his almost, you know, loses his his life and his career and his family before he reaches out for help.
0: I'm so grateful for your honesty, Chris, and for how willing you are, how vulnerable you are to share all of that with us. And especially to go through that emotional journey simply in telling the story. And I'm, I'm relieved to hear that it benefits you in that cathartic way and that I'm not just re-traumatizing you because, Mm -hmm. you know, I can only speak for myself, but I really appreciate learning what's behind the curtain, because you are right that we absolutely um, cherish and honor our first responders, rightly so. But the point is, within that uniform is a human. And Mm -hmm. these tragedies that we like to learn more about in the hopes that they don't happen again, or to enlarge our insight about it, it takes a toll and it came with a heavy price in a ripple mm-hmm. effect that you described. So I am so grateful that you are sacrificing yourself or like I said, thankfully driving some benefit by sharing this so that we know because these, those families are still dealing with this trauma, yours included. You're a success story, but many are still hurting. And there's a measure of pain with everyone every day that dealt with that, oh. you know? Yeah. So would yeah. you, as a final question, for anyone listening who has a family member that they see going through this that is a first responder or has PTSD from some kind of trauma like this, what would you say to them? What would you say to the family member, to the Cheryl, the sons out there that you've mentioned? What message do you have for them?
2: I say it to first responders and to the families. Um, as first responders, we know when we're not right or feeling right or things aren't right. Um, Cheryl knew things weren't right, you know, but you got to speak up. You have to, you have to check on people. You uh, matter of fact, I'm probably that guy that probably probably goes too far, checking (laughs) on people. You know, you okay? Are you okay? Because there's gonna be that one time they might say, you know what, I got. I don't even have it on. I got a deal where it says hashtag buddy check. Yeah, I got three or four friends that we just check in on each other every now and then. You know, they can. I've got. There's so many resources out there. I can get. Give. Can I give those real quick? If you don't care, of course, please, absolutely. Well, and fortunately I'm blessed to be part of, of several of them and get to still help. Uh, but there's a part of a group called trauma behind the badge mm-hmm. and it's dot uh, www.traumabehindthebadge.us. It's uh me and four other guys. I'm the only firefighter. They're all cops, uh, retired. Uh, I call them badasses with big hearts. That's what they are. Every one of them, they've all got some of the most amazing stories, but, uh, I always tell people when I speak, I give out my personal phone number. I will answer it 24-7. Um, I give my email address. Uh, we have get generated enough resources that if I don't have the answer or know the answer, I know I can call one of these guys. If they don't, they know. It won't take long. We'll have you on the phone with somebody. Uh, if it means getting to treatment, we'll have you in treatment somewhere. And that comes from uh, uh, one of the guys that's in trouble behind the badge started a deal called Survive First many years ago. Uh, It's www.survivefirst.us. And their main purpose is, number one, a first responder's life cannot be compromised. It's what they live by. And they take the answer no out of a first responder getting help. And that usually comes with, once they take that first responder, once they reach out, you better get them, because that may be the only chance you get. Mm. And a lot of times finances come up whether it's getting to treatment or hey, in insurance, you know, co-pays to get into a treatment facility. It's not everybody just doesn't open their doors and say, come on in, we'll worry about getting paid later. It's just not the way it works. But to Survive First, they have enough resources that, uh, I mean, we've put people on planes and played their tickets. We've covered co-pays for people and their insurance to get them into treatment. We all individually as a group get together and we go vet treatment facilities. So we don't send anybody just to you know Billy Bob's hayseed and trauma treatment. You know we we go to these places and we vet them. We get to know the people. And uh, so like I say there's so many resources out there. So I would tell any first responder or or family of a first responder that's watching this, if you feel like you need to reach out, those websites that I just gave have uh, all the contact information you need. And like I said, I may not or we may not have the answer. But I'll promise you we, we will we know somebody or we'll, we will get somebody to get you the answers.
0: Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for extending yourself in so many ways beyond your first responder um, identity where you you are there. You're there at the bombing. You're there at the trauma. You're there at Ground Zero for so much of this. And you are also there for Ground Zero for so many first responders that are experiencing that same PTSD and trauma that you did. So um, I'm so grateful and I'm honored that you shared your time and your story with us today. I'm honored to be your friend. I can't wait to see you again at whatever place that we get to be at together next. um, Sometime. Yeah. And you know that I'm always here as well to help amplify anything. So please, you always have friends here so that we can help share your causes and your messaging because it's one that is so important. Um, and you're right that we've come a long way as a society and in, in, in ways of talking about it and resources, but we're not all the way there yet. So hopefully, if Never. anyone needs to hear that message, then today they did from you. Right.
2: Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate all you do um, with this and, and the way you I love the way you all stand up for America and first responders and the military. It's, uh, it's heartwarming, heartwarming to see. And, uh, I just like to say, I appreciate all your efforts and all you do.
0: Please rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, listen, ad free with a Fox news podcast plus subscription on Apple podcasts and Amazon prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.